And uh, as he was unpacking his anger, I asked him, so could you tell me what's the legal basis of the forgiveness you seek? He was a little uncertain as to what, you know, what I was even asking. He didn't get the question. So I said to him, you know, something that is unfair, you feel it's unfair that you're not being forgiven. Something that is unfair is unjust. It's a miscarriage of justice. You believe that you are being done and, you know, you're suffering an injustice because you're not being forgiven. What's the legal basis of the forgiveness for which you seek? And he paused for a while and he actually got up to go because he had come to vent. And he was going to leave my office and he said, I suppose there's no legal basis. This is just irrational. I said, don't leave. There's a legal basis for the forgiveness for which you seek. It's called substitutionary atonement. Jesus on the cross suffered the punishment and consequences of what you have done to these people. Jesus took that together with everything else. And it is paid, it is legally settled by His blood in His body on the cross. And the proof that God has accepted it is in the resurrection. The Christ will suffer and then He will rise again on the third day. And on this basis, you can proclaim to all the nations, to everyone, literally to anyone, repentance for the forgiveness of sin. But we first need to recognize the problem. It's called confession. We've got to allow conviction to do its work, and we've got to do a proper job on this. So I introduced him to this thing we've called the forgiveness lifestyle. We don't just describe the event. We've got to go after naming the motives and the impact. Sin is so much more than an action. It attaches to and drives our emotions, our thoughts, our beliefs. We begin to rationalize stuff. You see, if you go to Genesis 3 and 4, you see that sin is so much more than breaking God's rules. Sin is partnering with God's enemy, the devil himself. That's the biggest problem with is aligning yourself with a force directly opposed to God and His purposes. So in Genesis 4, Cain is warned that sin is this intelligent evil that is crouching at his door, filled with malice, and it wants to come in and govern him. But he must have dominion, kingdom language, over it. So often we recycle our repentance when all we do is we focus on an action instead of understand what we part, who we partnered with, and how that's triggered lies and emotions and a whole bunch of stuff inside of us. So repentance is the hard work of going after these things. And so the next step is to, to repent. Like literally to come to God, naming what we've done, recognizing it, and then asking for the gift 
that breaks the attachment to those things. We break agreement. We confess. And then in faith, we need to receive our forgiveness. You see, Jesus has done the legal work. So, you know, if we talk about the strength of faith, as Nick was pointing out, strength of faith is not necessarily in the emotion, but it's in the, de- the extent to with which you comprehend the reality of God for a given situation and give your heart to it. There is that emotive commitment. It's not just an idea. You've got to give yourself to it. You give your whole body to it. So receiving, we heard it last week, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. Literally, you begin to receive the benefits of your salvation by faith. And this can go really, really deep. I've, I sat with, many years ago, a young girl who was blaming herself for a date rape. And she felt so ashamed and so broken. And yes, she had made some really poor decisions to end up in a situation where the man she was date, you know, on a date with did that to her. That did not excuse what he did. But she couldn't even come to terms with what he did because she was so stuck on what she had done. And then she said this, you know, I know God has forgiven me. I just can't forgive myself. And I said to her, you're not that important. Listen to yourself. The sovereign God, Lord of heaven and earth, creator, redeemer, sustainer, has forgiven you. Who do you think you are? Your problem is not that you think that God has forgiven you. Your problem is that you think God has not forgiven you. Your problem is that you've got a theology of a forgiveness, but you have not yet believed Him for your forgiveness. And literally as that door began to open, I could see the chains break off her mind and off her heart. Not only did she receive His forgiveness for the choices she had made, but she could forgive that man. And walk free in those moments. You see, Hebrews chapter 9 says that Christ came as the high priest. Notice this, of the good things that are already here. You've got to read chapter 8 to understand that phrase. It's like there's this new legal arrangement. It's called a new covenant that's been put in place. There's this new covenant. It's here already. The kingdom is here already. You know, if God's presence has been opened and the curtain is torn in two, is the logic of Hebrews. The curtain is torn and God's presence is now accessible for us and coming to us, then everything else is possible in His name. Like if if the King is present, then all the kingdom has become available to us. So the good things are already here. And He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by human hands, not even part of this creation. And he didn't go there with the blood of bulls and goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all. Notice you don't need this again and again. 
by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. This is the one we trust in. I'm going to jump a bit for time. How much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we can serve God. You see, Christ is the mediator of this new legal arrangement, this covenant, this new season we're in, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, not just one day, but it's the good things are here now, he says. Now that he has died as a ransom. And why did he do that? To set them free from the sins committed under the old arrangement. So I'm going to ask those who are serving at communion. If you'll come up. We're going to take communion now. And then I'm going to preach. This is just a warm-up, okay? Uh, but... I want you to understand the weight and the significance. You see, when I understand just what God is willing to do for me, how deep and how true and how full His forgiveness is, there's just no ways that I can say to another human being, you don't deserve the grace that I so desperately need. And so how do we receive? We receive by faith. We recognize, we repent. And then by faith, we let the promises of God become ours. And we are made free. The ransom price paid, the debt canceled, the new legal and lawful realities now defining all that we're in. So worship team lead us. I'm just going to pray and then we're going to come and receive communion. Thank you. Father, we thank you that we can, by faith, receive this incredible, incredible reality that because Messiah our Lord Jesus has suffered and died because your body was broken and your blood was poured out we are ransomed we are healed we are restored we are forgiven we receive that by faith. So we've, oh, I went backwards. There we go. We looked at those. We recognize it. And you do a proper job. You can't like, do a half a job of recognizing its impact, its outcomes, the way it's affected your thinking, the assumptions you make. The subconscious reactions you have to circumstances and situations, they're all preloaded by this stuff. 
So some, someone can walk into one environment and they can just be at peace because their, their mind and their heart has been garrisoned. Remember Philippians 4? They just held there. But then what you've got to do is rebuke, resist, kick out the lies, the control, the manipulation, the emotions, the triggers that the enemy has planted in you. Remember Genesis 4. He's, he's trying to get his foot in the door, and now he wants to govern you. He wants to be the puppet master over your life. And once you've recognized that stuff, so now you've done a proper job in number one, having now secured the lawful right through your forgiveness, you join with Jesus and you agree with him and you say to those lies, get out in Jesus' name. Now we do have a tool, it's called the Skidoo tool, and part of the equip thing will help you break agreements, say to those things, I want you out, say to God, take them away. And then what you do in the next step is you replace them. You allow God to come with the opposite. So if fear has been defining you, then faith can come. If discouragement has been defining your space, then encouragement can come. If despair is there, hope can come. If bitterness is there, then grace and forgiveness begins to define you. In other words, Matthew chapter 12 and we're going to come back to these two next week because they're really important and I haven't got time. I'm just giving you the big picture this week. But essentially what you do is you're going to put the opposite spirit in its place. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, don't leave the house empty. Don't just yach the darkness out. Fill it up with light. If he, if he comes and he finds all you've done is repented, but you haven't actually activated that which is positive and good in your life. Well, he just goes and finds a whole lot of habits and attitudes and mindsets that are even worse. And your result at the end is even worse. This is what Jesus said. And then if the true fruit of repentance is the willingness to put wrongs right. Now, it's really important to understand that forgiveness is embedded in this process. But forgiveness is not God's end game. As if forgiveness just settles the thing. God's end game is reconciling all things to himself. Now, if you think about it, all things being reconciled to God means that those things have to reconcile with each other as well. Now, if I've sinned against Upside Down Trevor, I don't know why your name tag's Upside Down, but if I sin against Trevor, um, and then I go, hallelujah, God has forgiven me, I feel so great, but I've actually still got his car that I've stolen. How do you think we are going to be reconciled? You see, the goal is the making new of all things and the bringing of God's righteousness and justice to the earth. Now, forgiveness is an essential part of that process. Because if you're still feeling shamed and blamed, you're not going to take the next step. But the end goal, and I should have a seventh step, which should be shalom, in which all things have been brought together again. And unless I am willing to put wrongs right, then I am just playing religious games with this whole thing. John the Baptist in John 3 verse 8 we read says, 
produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what restitution is. Putting right the wrongs. You are not atoning for your sin by doing that. Jesus is atoned. And there's often situations in which you cannot make full restitution. You know, people die as a result of mistakes and or sins. Sometimes all you can do is do what was in your power, but restitution is not within your power. But if it is within your power, the test of your repentance will be your restitution. That will tell whether you for real. So we want to be sorry for apartheid. Are we willing to produce the fruit that's in keeping with our repentance? Do we want to see a nation that sees the fruit of restitution as an outcome? So gospel restitution cannot by its very nature be driven by guilt. You can't, you know, people want you to make right the wrong because they want you to feel guilty. You just got to go, sorry, you just, you've just rung the wrong doorbell. You've tried the wrong access point. That's not going to get you to my heart and to my spirit. Trying to make me feel guilty will not open up the door of restitution. I am forgiven. I am not making atonement. Jesus has done it. I'm purely doing this because I have embraced the vision of a good God whose righteousness has now been imputed to me. It's part of my DNA. And so I do the right thing because he does the right thing. That's it. And so it's the chosen freedom of the forgiven. I'm going ahead of myself here. You know, Zacchaeus, he restored, he made restitution. Was Jesus making him feel guilty? No, he wanted to. His heart had been unlocked to the joy and the glory of putting wrongs right, of being given another chance. So if you're needing to make atonement, don't. Your atonement has been made by Jesus. Trust him, trust him. Trust him. Receive your forgiveness. Believe it. Live in it. Kick out the darkness. Embrace God's light, his spirit. And then step into, like Zacchaeus, the joy of creating righteousness and shalom all around you so that people celebrate and laugh because of the goodness of God. This vision is not a guilt-driven, begrudging restitution. The kingdom of God becomes a party when we get this right. Now, some of you might be offended by that because you think that sinners ought to grovel. And you might think that that's true of a Putin, or you might think that's true of your neighbor whose dog barks too much. That they ought to grovel. Well then you don't understand what Jesus has done on the cross. If that's your posture towards sinners. 
then you're not keeping company with Jesus. He wants us forgiven. He wants us declared righteous. He wants us with full access to all the resources of our inheritance. So restitution is not an optional extra, but it's never the basis and cause. It's the fruit and evidence. So we've seen that repentance unlocks forgiveness. The second thing is that repentance par uh, forgiveness parallels repentance. Jesus taught this all the time, all over the place. But he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those. And then verse 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. In other words, your repentance receives power. If you do not forgive people, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. So we start a parallel journey, as it were, in which we recognize what happens. So repentance is when I've done something wrong. What do I do when someone does something wrong in regard to me? I begin to mirror the journey. So it still takes recognition. It still takes recognizing what did this open up inside of me? What anger, what emotions, what, what fears has this action of, uh, of sin against me? You see, the reality is, is that we do not simply give the enemy access when we sin. Listen to this. The enemy gains access when we are sinned against and we don't forgive. That's why this matters so much. I know it seems unfair that someone should do something to you and suddenly you're vulnerable to all kinds of enemy interference, lies, emotions, and brokenness. And it's not even always personal sin. It can simply be the fact that we're living in a broken world. Trauma can happen through nobody else's choice. Except, of course, Adam and Eve. I mean, sin's always at the root of suffering. That's our fallen world. But when Jesus was asked about the man born blind, who sinned, him or his parents, he says, nothing. But you need to understand, God's contending for his glory in this situation. So I've got to do a proper job of step one. And then in that process, and there will be some tools for you to work through with this, we go through a very deliberate process of forgiving people for the lies the enemy told us, for the fruit that this is born in our lives, for the stuff that was, withheld, that was kept from us. We do a thorough job of forgiving them for all those things. We, you don't just repent of or forgive the event. In our understanding and Christian worldview, we're constantly dealing with a much wider scope of impact. It's never just the event. Understand that. That's what God was explaining to Cain. Sin is at the door. It wants to get in. And it's going to plant a whole lot of stuff in your life that can con literally control and govern you. And then from the heart, as we do this, we speak release to them. 
We let them go. We, we bless them. We no longer hold them to that thing. And by the way, we do this whether they are sorry or not. Jesus is very clear. Repentance is unilateral. I can repent even if the person I offended refuses to forgive me. That's no excuse for not repenting, according to Jesus. Like, I'm going to answer. And you know what? I need to forgive even when the offender is unrepentant. That's according to Jesus. And so we forgive regardless of their response. Why? Because the legal basis of all forgiveness is Jesus' death on the cross. And I can only ignore his death if I, literally, I'm ignoring the death of Jesus if I say to someone, I won't forgive you. It's that central to the gospel itself. That's why Jesus made it very clear. You will not be forgiven. In fact, Matthew 18, you'll suffer torment. You will. You will suffer. And then you do What did this open up inside me? It wasn't something I did. It was something someone else did to me. But it's triggered a whole lot of stuff for me. What has this opened up? Get out in Jesus' name. I resist you. I rebuke you. Your your rent. That agreement has been torn up by Jesus. Your occupational entitlement is over. Leave in Jesus' name. Those lies, those emotions, those behaviors, those addictions, they've got to go in Jesus' name. And then I consciously receive the opposite. And I build and I sow into the spirit and not into the flesh in the language of Galatians 6. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant a new field. I'm going to sow a new field. And then you get to... The step of reconciliation. And so, they balance each other. If the true fruit of repentance is the willingness to make restitution. Now, restitution and repentance are different things. Understand that forgiveness and reconciliation, although they're on the same side of the chart, they're different things. But the depth and the integrity of your forgiveness will be tested by by, by your willingness to reconcile. Now, that doesn't always mean that you can. As with restitution, sometimes things are beyond your power, especially because this is a two-way street and it requires the other person to walk the path on their side. In fact, it becomes destructive to try and reconcile with somebody who has not rebuked and replaced and is walking in utter darkness. And you're saying, I need to reconcile with you because Jesus wants to reconcile all things. Only if they have walked the road of recognizing, repenting, receiving grace. And hear me, only if they can tell your story of what it cost you to forgive them. If they don't understand what you've had to forgive them for, there's no reconciliation there. It's It's just you're not pulling the trigger of hostility. Now, you can walk without hostility or bitterness towards someone, but reconciliation will take something from their side, but it will also test you. So we can't say to someone, 
I forgive you. I just never want to see your face again. It, it just doesn't work, does it? You realize. So there must be a longing, an openness, a willingness, a hunger for relationship. And that's where you'll be tested. And believe me, that's a work that Jesus can do. You're thinking it's impossible. I could not forgive him. I want to tell you in Jesus' name that every sin is nailed to him. And if he's paid for it, you can forgive it. Literally. You see, I've been talking too long. I think my thing has stopped. Uh, just wake it up. You might have to close it and open it. Um, Christianity denies you the identity or the right of victimhood. You can't follow Jesus and be a victim. <laughs> You've got to forgive and walk free. Cannot make that your identity and follow Jesus. Forgiveness sets you free from being a victim and living like that all the days of your life. And so the way you break the power of an offense against you is through forgiveness. That's how you break its power. And that's why if you won't forgive, it will continue to control you, see you addicted and angry, or even just numb, or living with a void of denial. You don't even know why you can't love, or you don't even know why you can't vulnerably talk about you know, conflict or whatever it is. Because that trauma and that offense has gone so deep that you don't even know how to unpack it anymore. Now some of you are looking at me with big eyes. Please go to a group and talk this thing through. You're thinking, like, part of this is, I can see your point. And part of it is, if you knew my story, you wouldn't be saying that. Believe me, I've listened to many stories, and I say this every time. This is how the gospel sets us free. We set ourselves free when we forgive those who sin against us. But here's another thing. So now we're in Matthew 6. Sorry, this is Matthew 18. This isn't Matthew 6. Forgiveness unlocks repentance. So we've seen repentance unlocks forgiveness. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus tells the story of an unforgiving man who ends up tormented by and captive to jailers, as it were. And you get handed over by God into that situation. God hands you over to that. Now, I know it seems unfair. You were sinned against, and now you're the captive until you forgive. That's, that's what Jesus says. And, and this passage has been teaching about 
When I'm sinned against, God's call to forgive is not whether the, the, the offender can suffer enough or whether I must suffer through some kind of forgiveness process. The suffering is on Jesus. I choose to forgive because he suffered. Repentance for forgiveness, and I dare not expect or ask or tell someone to repent. If I do not intend to forgive, how dare I? How dare I? If I'm a believer in Jesus, the legal basis is him. It brings us back full circle. And so we name the emotions, we name the addictions that the sin has triggered in us. We name the controlling behaviors. We name the fear, the shame, the lies about God, the lies about ourselves. And we recognize this is a strategy from the enemy to control us from the inside. And we forgive it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake and on the basis of what Jesus has done. And when we do that, we break its right to occupy. It must leave. I was about 10 years old when I had to spend two years in hospital, literally fastened to a bed. And during that time, an older patient befriended me, groomed me, and then sexually abused me. And I tried to pretend it never happened. Just lock it away. That's how you cope with that level of trauma. You just never tell anyone. But you see, what was done to me started to happen through me. Though I never abused anyone, it unlocked a sexual addiction that lasted nearly 20 years, acting out what was done to me sin had gained an access and I hadn't forgiven I just suppressed it it also opened a door to anger a deep anger you see I was 10 prepubescent a soft innocent squeaky voiced little boy vulnerable and it led to a gender identity crisis in complete silence and shame, not knowing who I was. You see, the devil can tell us terrible lies 
when we are sinned against and we don't know how to deal with it. And so my reaction was to be, was to make a decision, a determination to be strong and to be masculine, driven by an inner vow that no man would ever find me sexually attractive again. Except in my anger then, ironically, I came to be afraid of intimacy, beauty, vulnerability, and anything feminine. Literally half the human race. I couldn't honor women. Instead, in my anger, I just made them afraid. Literally. That's, that's all that women felt when they were near me. They didn't know why. I didn't know why. It was just this aggression directed at everyone. And I'd become a Christian, but I just didn't think that Jesus could go to this kind of pain. I thought it was just about confessing my sins and going to heaven. And every time I thought about it, I was covered in shame and you'd repent. But repenting held no power because I was only turning one lock. I just pretended that man didn't exist. You see, understand this, there's no power in repenting of something you first need to forgive. You're going to have to turn both locks. But there's no power. In the same way, there's no power of forgiving something that should actually require repentance. Like, I can't say, Grant, like when I've sinned against you, we're good, I forgive you. Like, that's unjust. It's got no power. It's got no integrity. For me to say to him, I forgive you when I've sinned against him. You can see it's, it's, it's manipulative. It's dark. I want you to see that it's just as dark to try and repent of something you ought to forgive. It has no power because it has no integrity, because it has no connection to the truth of what happened. You can only break the power of what happened when you rightly respond to it. And so I was repenting of something I ought to forgive. And I had no power. We were doing the lamb course in California. And I told sin. And then we told our small group. And they prayed with me. And the next morning, went for a run on the banks of, wait for it, the Sacramento River. <sighs> Come, Holy Spirit. What a wonderful name for a river. The Sacrament River. And as I'm running, I'm praying. I'm saying, Jesus. Now, we haven't even done. A, some of you are thinking, oh, he used inner healing. I didn't even know this tool. Jesus, I know you never left me. Where were you? And in an instant, on the roadside, running next to the Sacramento River, 
complete, total recall. It was like I was in that hospital ward. I could still see the colors on the wall. I could see the flaking paint. I could, and, and I remembered the man, his appearance, his own reason for being in hospital, his full name and details. I went from denial and suppression to instant, total recall. And when I saw this man, I also saw Jesus. This man was doing to me what he was doing. Literally, I was in the memory. And Jesus was at my right hand side and he was holding my right hand. And he was saying over me in those moments, this is my body. This is my body. I don't put too much theology on that. That's also his body. But he was contending for my flesh and blood. And as I heard him, I cried out my forgiveness to the offender. And as I forgave him, it was like decades of darkness had to leave. Now you need to understand, I was a senior pastor at this church when this was happening. It wasn't like I was living in active addiction and whatever. It was like I was living with a whole big lid on a whole lot of stuff. You won't believe how wonderful it is to feel the yoke of darkness break. That's my testimony. That's why I wrote this whole series and sermon. This is born of my own freedom. Now, its permission to occupy was cancelled. Now, I could say, get out in Jesus' name. And the darkness had to leave. It couldn't stay. Now, the fear and the secrecy was just broken off. And now, I, I could repent. I could restart the process and repent of the ways I had lived it out. And I could repent of my anger. And I could repent of yeah, my fear of gentleness and beauty and softness and tenderness. And I could receive those as gifts in my life instead of threats. You see, Jesus calls us to walk free. And so if you're stuck in the craziness of repenting again and again of the same old, same old, and you're repenting and you're repenting and you're repenting, almost certainly the question you need to ask is, Lord Jesus, who do I need to forgive? You're turning the wrong lock. Now you'll need to turn both. And the door of freedom will swing wide 